Hello, I'm Tom Melville, and welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. In this episode... I was just playing with my two daughters at home, actually, when I had the thought to create something. So just as they were playing, I started verbalising and saying some words as they were playing just to, to myself to see what they sounded like and thought, oh, they sound okay and started jotting things down. We'll hear from a preschool teacher in the Riverina who's written a children's book to help explain the COVID pandemic to kids. We'll also visit the quirky town of Dimboola in the Wimmera region of Western Victoria. Just because it's a nice piece of timber. Ah. So I've got to sort of scoop it out and then figure out how to make it. Because <laughs> I don't have a bloody clue. But first, Lake Macquarie is south of Newcastle in New South Wales. It's Australia's largest coastal estuary, covering about 110 square k's. Tourists love to boat and fish in its crisp blue waters, and much of the shoreline is undeveloped, providing a rich habitat for fish and bird life. The lake is bordered by residential, rural and industrial land, as well as two of the biggest coal ash dams in the country, legacy of ongoing electricity generation on the lake's shore. Glad I wore my gumboots. Producer Laura Corrigan followed a group of community members taking water samples at Lake Araring in the Lake Macquarie region. So, glove, glove up. It's painful to be an environmentalist and go through so many gloves and plastic things, but that's for the greater cause. Um, cool, so we'll start with this stuff. So, so this, what is a, that? this is a basically a pH meter, but it's pH and EC, which is salinity. They're testing for traces of various heavy metals, such as mercury and arsenic. And the fear is that the nearby coal ash dam at a Raring power station could be harming the local environment. Whoa, okay. Now we're testing for salinity and it's reaches upper limit, which this little pH meter only takes um, readings up to 4,000 microsiemens, and this is right at the upper limit. So this is some super saline water right about now. So can you just introduce yourself, please? I'm Neil Wynn, and I've lived on Lake Macquarie all my life, 50 years just recently. I've grown up under... Fales Point Power Station and I've watched the environmental vandalism that's that's taken place over the years. You know, I've seen the the ash dam spills into Waiya Creek, uh, so thick you couldn't even walk on it. Fish kills in the creek. Even you know, you know, even in primary school, teachers forced to close all the windows during a hot summer's day because of the the smell from the power station. So that's that, and then now we'll grab a unfiltered sample. I'm Lee Rogers and I'm a Dora Creek resident and member of the Colash Community Alliance. I used to swim in Dora Creek, you know, I would never let my grandkids swim in this lake now. We used to catch fish and crabs and I'll never eat fish out of here again. It's heartbreaking, it's heartbreaking. Neil and Lee are part of the Colash Community Alliance a group of Lake Macquarie residents concerned about the management of the region's ash dams. There's people fishing over there. <laughs> I wouldn't want to eat it. But... Coal ash, or fly ash, is the waste product of coal electricity generation. And the ash is stored in dozens of dams around Australia. Two of the biggest are on the banks of Lake Macquarie, storing over 60 million tonnes of ash from the Araring and Vales Point power stations. I asked consultant Peter Healy to explain. 
My name's Peter Healy. I'm a professional engineer working in the power industry and I've worked in materials and fly ash for about the last 30 years. If you imagine when you burn wood in a wood-fired stove, you end up with ash and charcoal and stuff at the end of burning your fire. So the same thing happens when you burn coal in a furnace in a power station. You end up with an ash, which is the material that's left after the coal has combusted. It's the non-combustible stuff. Power stations have been fined repeatedly for the poor management of coal ash. In 2016, the EPA fined Origin Energy after ash dust from the Araring power station was blown into surrounding suburbs. And that same plant was fined for excessive dust pollution again in 2019. The Myuna Bay Sports and Recreation Centre in Lake Macquarie was shut down in 2019 because of the risk the nearby ash dam posed in the event of a major earthquake. Origin Energy is footing the bill for a new camp at a different site. And it's around the proposed site that the Coal Ash Community Alliance was doing the water testing to see for themselves if the area is polluted. Okay, all right, going into the sediment. I hope these little bits of reeds will be really annoying and not what we want, but we'll see if we can get below it. You just kind of scrape it along the bottom. I usually sit out and let Paul do this. (laughs) Coal ash makes up about a fifth of Australia's total waste, and at this stage, less than half of that is reused while other countries are able to use a lot more, such as in Japan, where 97% of the waste is repurposed. Jo Lynch was leading the water testing. My name's Jo Lynch. I'm the coordinator at the Hunter Community Environment Centre, which is a not-for-profit grassroots organisation based in Hamilton, Newcastle. I spoke to her in studio about the coal ash dams in Lake Macquarie. If you look at a bird's eye view of the lake, they're really close to the shores and they look a bit like a moonscape. The coal ash is grey, kind of a cementy texture. Areas are partly rehabilitated. There's a bit of grass growing on them and things, but they're kind of scars on the landscape. Is there anything unique about the Australian coal ash dams? Generally in Australia, we have poor management practices of coal ash waste. One of those key issues, besides the low reuse rates, is the fact that none of the dams are lined. Best practice recommends that there should be an impermeable membrane to prevent coal ash from coming into contact with water and groundwater. But at the moment in Australia, all the coal ash dumps are in touch with groundwater, so there's a risk of pollution if they're not contaminating at the moment. That is a big concern and the reason that we're seeing high levels of heavy metals in waterways near to coal ash dumps. The discharge of metals from ash dams has been linked to deadly and sublethal effects on fish, including reduced growth and reproduction. In 2018, the state government found elevated concentrations of heavy metals in Lake Macquarie fish. The Hunter Community Environment Centre's own water testing found concentrations of heavy metals exceeding Australian aquaculture guidelines. There have been government studies to Department of Primary Industries fishing, along with the EPA and the OEH, have carried out some studies to to get a better handle on how much heavy metals are accumulating in the fish in Lake Macquarie. And we suspect that that's going to be lowering the populations of these fish overall, and and that's a concern for recreational fishers and biodiversity enthusiasts alike, and then birds as well. There's a lot of research into the toxicological impacts on birds from heavy metals, and it again affects their ability to rear their young, and population declines over time are one of the biggest risks. U.S. studies have linked human consumption of large amounts of coal ash heavy metals to cancer and nervous system impacts. The toxicological impacts of exposure to heavy metals in certain levels are there. It's a real risk for human health and also for the populations of native species. The species that we're concerned about are going to cop the most issues are fish in lakes and estuaries nearby because 
the way that heavy metals behave is that they're in water and some of them settle down into sediment and then bottom feeding fish and like crabs and, and bottom feeding organisms take in some of that sediment and take in the heavy metals uh, and then predators feed on those organisms and the heavy metals move up through the ecosystem that way and of course humans being the predators that we are we eat fish and there is a current health warning on the consumption of fish from Lake Macquarie due to the high selenium levels in the fish there. But Peter Healy says the Australian coal ash dams are up to scratch. One of the things that we're fortunate in Australia is that our uh, our ashes have a very low level of mineral trace elements. So unlined lagoons have been very common for a long time. I'm not concerned by being close to an unlined lagoon, even if I was living close by. That's not something I'd be troubled by. If you were building a new power station today, then that probably would be a a slightly higher environmental standard. But at the time they were built, that was very much the common standard and its performance has been satisfactory. Delta says its monitoring at Vales Point has found no influence of the ash dam on the groundwater and avoids dust events by keeping uncapped reservoirs wet. Origin says its monitoring of the Araring ash dam goes beyond the requirements of its EPA licence. It says the risk of environmental impacts on Lake Macquarie and the local community are low. The Hunter Community Environment Centre and the Coal Ash Community Alliance want to see less waste, and they want the ash that is produced to be put to good use. Joe says the ash can be used to make construction materials. So coal ash waste can be used as a supplementary material for limestone in the manufacture of cement. It's a much stronger, longer-lasting material. Coal ash has some unique properties. There are a couple of different business people who would like to, they have technology and patents and they've been working for a long time designing technology to facilitate the safe reuse of coal ash and the manufacture of building products, lightweight aggregates and those sorts of things. Uh, Across the globe, there's a lot of companies who are reusing coal ash in big quantities and we'd like to see something like that, a similar setup happen here. Ideally, something like an on-site manufacturing plant for coal ash waste on the current industrial sites. Power stations have been operating for many decades They're big industrial sites, they employ a lot of people. It would be great to see an industry dedicated to reusing our waste product beneficially, saving on the need for other materials having to be mined elsewhere and other environments being impacted. So there could be exciting things on the horizon for Australia's manufacturing and building products industry with all this coal ash lying around. Coal ash is not classified as a hazardous waste product. And this means that there are few restrictions for its disposal, transport and reporting. This exclusion was created, in part, to encourage the reuse of coal ash. Yet Australia's reuse figures are low. Vales Point and Araring plants only use 25% of their ash. Peter Healy says ideally more coal ash would be used to make concrete and building materials, but then you can't force a product onto market. My view is that it's up to the industry to come up with product that consumers actually want and to make them economically viable. At this stage, there are opportunities with ash which aren't exploited because the economics don't stack up properly. But do you design an economic system that that favours that particular product? Someone else could argue, well, why aren't you favouring our product instead? The regulatory environment could be a limiting factor in the expansion of fly ash products. Four cement companies in southeast Queensland were fined by the ACCC for anti-competitive conduct over contracts entered into with power stations. Joe Lynch says the government should be doing more to encourage the reuse of coal ash. To establish a new market for coal ash, some government input and a lot of collaboration and cooperation needs to happen. 
But again, we think it comes back to the incentive for qualified power stations to work with other business interests and whoever they need to, to reduce the amount of coal ash they're dumping. At the moment, there's no real incentive for power station companies to deal with this um, issue in a rigorous manner. Peter Healy again. Look, ideally, it's always nice with waste products to see them reused and recycled in as large a way as possible. And so ideally, more of it would be used than is at the moment. There's an opportunity to use at least the 50 or 60% that's not being used currently, and that would be a good thing. It would be better if it didn't have to be stored, but ultimately... When people turn on the lights, it requires the power to be generated somewhere and that requires at the moment uh, some coal to be burnt which produces some ash and you've got to put it somewhere. A 2019 New South Wales government inquiry into coal ash was put on hold because of the COVID pandemic. It will look into current regulatory regimes as well as the economic and employment opportunities associated with coal ash's reuse. Delta and Origin, who own the Lake Macquarie power stations, say they're investing substantially in increasing coal ash reuse. What are you collecting? Um, is this pendulum? Fair, fair oh, yeah. I think there is one. Oh, it was that. They're wanting to look at, um, see if they can find the, if there's any heavy metals in the feathers of oh, yeah. Yeah, black swans. Yeah, I'll grab you another bag. Back at the lake, Lee Rogers from Dora Creek reflects on how bird life in the area has changed since the power stations were built. The mangroves at Muddy Lake, when I was a kid, were chock-a-block full of birds. You couldn't see a branch without a bird on it. Now, there's still some birds there, but I estimate probably at least 80% of the bird life that used to live on Muddy Lake is now gone. And it's heartbreaking. Here's Neil Wynn again. You just have to wait till a westerly breeze and you see it blowing across the lake. You know, you can be over near Swansea Belmont or Nord's Wharf and you just see these massive big plumes coming from a roaring ash dam. That's Neil Wynn there. And I know that rivers and lakes were a huge part of my childhood. I do hope our waterways remain healthy for a long time to come. Now, the town of Dimboola in the Wimmera region of Western Victoria is going through something of a renaissance. That's Alex. ACM journalist Alex Darling writes for the Wimmera Mail Times, the Ararat Advertiser and the Stall Times News. Can we go in? He takes us on a tour of Dimboola. Surname Alex? Darling, like the river. Yeah, I've got a, uh, a good mate in Sydney, Fred Darling. Oh, I'm afraid I uh, don't know any guys in Sydney. You hear a lot about how regional Australia's population is in a state of constant decline with emigration to big cities. And as you drive through the nondescript town of Dimboola in northwest Victoria's wheat belt, you'd assume as much. It has a modest population of 1,700, an IGA, a school, a hospital, quaint single-storey houses with large front verandas, terracotta and corrugated roofs. But look closer. It's not like every other small town. I've only sold to four locals in the last three years. The rest of them have all been mainly metropolitan Melbourne buyers. Gary Price is a Dimboola real estate agent. He used to own the Dimboola Hotel back in the 70s and showed me around one of his listings, a grand two-storey house that used to be a bank and a solicitor's office. A lot of people are finding now that uh, there's no better place to live in regional Australia. I think people are sort of moving away, if they can, from bigger centres and they're moving out into Australia, into these regional centres, and uh, I think you're going to see a lot more of it. So 
Is it people from Melbourne that are buying in Bimboola at the moment? All over the country. Uh, Melbourne, uh, Geelong, uh, Interstate, Western Australia. In the centre of town is the National Bank of Australasia building. It's a proud structure dating back to 1909, though the last transaction took place years ago. Two storeys with a cream and burgundy facade, chimneys. The exterior sounds and looks like something out of a Wes Anderson film. So does what's inside. Since last year, most perplexingly, it's been an Imaginarium, full of niche collectibles and curiosities such as a German medical skeleton, Japanese pencil erasers, steampunk clocks and hot air balloons hanging from the ceiling. Oh, and that's Bonza, the pet turkey who greets people out front. Chan Oi is the co-owner of the Imaginarium with his partner Jamie. They moved to town from Melbourne last year, where Chan used to have a restaurant. They wanted to start a business where they could express themselves more. You can hear the turkey from here? I heard it, I heard it. <laughs> yeah, so the turkey's been really popular. Because um, you don't expect to see that in the middle of town. Yeah, and the shirt's quite dramatic too. I mean, you know, you think, you know, that's where Sydney Melbourne painted, and also where they use as food storage for, um, um, you know, I guess, during World War II. Chan and Jamie eventually want to turn their second level into a bed and breakfast. The community thing really quite interesting. Once they know that we're doing something, um, or, you know, we're passionate about certain things, they want to contribute. Hmm. You know, as you can see from the historical room, it's yeah. changed from that. Yeah, because otherwise it's just sitting in the house. Yeah. You know? And then because we call it the Imaginarium, I think people, you know, are aware that whatever we do, we really want to um, be playful and imaginative. Mel Obst is an artist and high school art teacher who, in her words, has lived a semi-nomadic lifestyle much of her adult life. She was born down the road and went to school in town. She now lives 40 minutes south in Natamuk, but Dimbula is home. This is part of the reason she opened the arts and crafts store Tilly and Mango here in May. So I'd always kind of had a bit of a pipe dream to just have a little, not a gallery space, but a really informal space that people could come in and whether it's original art or prints or lots, have lots of different prize pots, but just, mm-hmm. I'm a teacher too, I only teach two days, so it's kind of my plan. Down the street from Chan and Mel is the Dimbula store. The cafe was opened in April 2019 by John and Alex O'Halloran, who split their lives between Dimbula and Ocean Grove near Geelong. They do a mean Philly cheesesteak, incidentally. I'm standing in the backyard shed of Dimbula local Tim Skirm. Wood shavings and sawdust cover every surface and the walls are lined by ornate instruments made from offcuts and recycled treasures like kitchen sink strainers. Excuse me, are you Tim? Tim has been making cigar box guitars for several years. He's made guitars from donated skirting boards scrapped during home renovations. His instruments are made to order and for sale in Chan and Jamie's Imaginarium and he calls his venture... Barefoot guitars, and not to his preferred footwear. Looks like I've caught you in the middle of a work session there. Oh, I'm, yeah, I've got a big stack that I'm doing up at the moment. There you go. Just started, and I've got all these done. All these. 
Wow. Is, are these, uh, the guitars, the only thing you make? or Pretty much. I started on a lyre, um, but I don't really... Just because it's a nice piece of timber. Ah. So I've got to sort of scoop it out and then figure out how to make it. <laughs> I don't have a clue. <laughs> Tim used to live in far north Queensland and came to Dimboola with his partner four years ago, drawn by the Wimmera River. We lived on acreage which had kangaroos and trees and that was it, nothing else. <laughs> and it wasn't suitable for anything else. Um, and so we sold up to become um, mortgage-free. And then we'd have to look for a place to live. And we, we'd been through here a few times. So we came and had a look uh, all over the area, actually. But we camped here one night and I woke up in the morning and went for a walk out in the back of the van and there was a river. And <laughs> I didn't realise that there was a river here at that stage. And I wanted a river because I, I swim a lot in the summertime. And it was a beautiful river. Back at his listing... Gary tells me he's excited about the influx of people to his beloved Dimboola. Gary thinks it's only going to get more popular. I think it will be accelerated by the pandemic. Once this is all uh, closed down, I'm absolutely certain. I mean, I had 20 years in real estate in Portland and, uh, and even I'm talking to my colleagues and mates in Portland and the same thing is happening in Portland. And I think it's, it's happening generally all over Australia. And... I think it's a good thing. I think uh, what it's doing is freeing up a lot of uh, family homes in the metropolitan city area and allowing retirees to come out here and retire. And what a better place to retire. I mean, you're on the Wimmera River. It's a quiet and a wonderful uh, lot of people live in this town. Uh, I had the hotel here in the 70s and uh, the big hotel that burnt down. Oh, no kidding. Alex Darling's musical prowess on show there as he reported from Dimboola in Western Victoria. Yeah, you're right, it does sound good. And lastly, it's been tough to keep on top of the COVID pandemic with a seemingly endless parade of new figures, restrictions and guidelines. So if you think it's hard for us, think of the children. Tumut preschool teacher Hannah Goldspink realised she needed a way to explain the pandemic to her students. She couldn't find any resources, so she made her own, a children's book. Producer Laura Corrigan spoke to Hannah. So when COVID first started to break out and we were heading into lockdown, I could see that the children that were coming to preschool were starting to look a bit confused about the changes that were happening. Uh, there were a lot less children at preschool. One stage I only had six children in our class and usually we would have about 19 we were meeting the children at the gate and bringing them down into the preschool rather than their parent or guardian. We were taking them straight in to wash their hands before they could play. We were taking their temperatures on arrival and then taking their temperatures throughout the day. We could just see that they were obviously confused about what was happening, why all these changes had been made. We had talked about what was happening a little bit, but I just felt like I needed something that was going to help explain these changes in a way that wasn't going to scare the children, in a, in a way that they would understand. Children really 
relate well to songs and stories. So I thought, well, I'll try and write something that's going to help support what I am saying. And it developed into the World Quarter Germ. And so why a children's book? Why not write a teacher's pamphlet or something like that? To me, that is what I felt able to do. So it really didn't take me very long. I was just playing with my two daughters at home, actually, when I had the thought to create something. So just as they were playing, I started verbalising and saying some words as they were playing just to myself to see what they sounded like and thought, oh, they sound okay and started jotting things down. They were only one and two. So they didn't really care that I was mumbling things to myself. So I wasn't playing anything in particular with them that was related to the book, but it was just a comfortable space to be in to start putting some words together. The world has caught a germ, Sam. The germ is near and far. We won't be able to do some things like visit Nen and Pa. We don't have the germ right now, but many people do. And if we go and visit them, we might catch it too. And so then how did you realise that this could be an actual thing that you do? How did you go from those initial ideas to a book? My husband was working from home at the time and I went out to him and I said, I I just wrote a book or I just wrote a poem. And he said, what do you mean? And I read it to him and he thought it was amazing. So I then read it to my mum and my sister and they also thought it was great. The next step I shared it with all my colleagues at work who also thought it was great and it, it just went on from there. So I put some images to the words from Google Stock and put it out mostly just to help in the local community to explain what was happening but it just started to go viral so I thought well let's try and get it published. Penny's mum is a clever nurse. She really is a hero. She's helping all the doctors get the number down to zero. Penny's dad is a hero too. He's as busy as a bee. He's stocking all the grocery shelves with food for you and me. One of my co-workers, I actually job share with her. She did the illustrations. She's very artistic. So she was able to do the illustrations and we put them together and got it published. And what was it like working with her? It was so easy. You know, we're friends as well. We're not just co-workers. So we put a bit of pressure on Brooke, the illustrator, to get them done. But she got it done in the time frame that we needed and she did an amazing job. She's really brought the words to life and just done the words justice. So I'm really grateful for her for doing that. And how did your preschoolers respond to the book? They really enjoyed it. I think it made a lot of sense to them. There's lots of information in there about making sure you wash your hands and how we can't see germs. We've used the term bubble space, which we were using anyway, but to try and explain more about social distancing, especially to little children, is really difficult. So Brooke's done an illustration in the book of the two characters, Penny and Sam, with bubbles around them. We have a special bubble, which is called our bubble space. If you keep your bubble big and round, germs can't jump upon your face. So are the preschoolers a little less confused now that you've been able to read this book to them? Yeah, I think so. And a lot of families have also said that their children at home are really responding well to it and understanding, you know, why we were in lockdown, why some children were still at preschool or at school and the importance of hand washing. So I think they are a little less confused from reading the book. And your own children, how have they responded to the book? They're still quite young. My, she's now three. When I wrote the book, she was two. So she's now three, but she does love reading it. She's especially loves looking at the pictures that Brooke has drawn of the germs on the hands 
and she understands that hand washing is very important. So, yeah, it's helped her as well. Miss May said my friends were staying home to stop more people getting sick, but she told me I was safe here and showed me a little trick. Sam, if you wash your hands with soap, those germs just cannot stick, but you must do it very slowly. Washing hands is never quick. And it was a book to help children to understand, but what have you learnt from the experience? I've learned a lot. I had never imagined publishing a children's book before. That's not something that has never crossed my mind, but I've realised that, you know, anyone can do it. It's quite an easy process, really. And just to, to go with your gut. So I knew that I needed to make something to to help the children in my class, and that's what I did. And a lot of people have been very grateful for what we have created to help support them as well. Now you've done the book, what's next? I would love to continue writing children's books on tricky concepts. I've actually drafted one on the bushfires. My parents-in-law lost their house during the bushfires, so I've written one from the perspective of their grandchildren. I would love to get it published, but I will just see how the World Quarter Germ goes first before I go on to publish any more, but it is something that I would love to do. We'll have to stay at home a while so more people don't get sick. Although we cannot see the germ, we know it loves to stick. The germ is very sneaky. It can live in lots of places. It's so very contagious, Sam. There are more than 100 cases. The World Quarter Germ by Hannah Goldspink, illustrated by Brooke Bond, is available in hardcover, paperback and for Kindle on Amazon Australia. And that's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. I'll be back in two weeks' time with more. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced by Laura Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville, with reporting this week from Alex Darling. We're a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please share it with your friends or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also tell us what you think on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Voice of Real Australia. Special thanks this week to Juanita Greville, Jessica McLaughlin, Matthew Kelly, Janine Graham, Rachel Thornett, Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. This is an ACM podcast.